Welcome back to the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. And we have a very special episode, one that we've been working on for several months. It's all about beauty. Yes, and this is not beauty tips. We're not going to tell you how to make your hair shinier, how to lose five pounds. I don't really care how long your eyelashes are, and I don't know what shade of lipstick best suits that upcoming job interview. <laughs> no, this episode is about the politics of beauty. We're talking about body image, appearance discrimination. What beauty meant in history, what it could mean in the future, what makes somebody beautiful, and what our culture perceives as not beautiful. And you'll maybe be surprised to learn that there are consequences of being beautiful as well as not being beautiful. So to start off, we looked way into the annals of history. Right. And we took a look at the life of probably one of the greatest icons of beauty, Cleopatra. Even though we really have no idea what she looked like. She was probably short and apparently had a really big nose. But that's about all we really know, yet she still is the epitome of beauty in modern culture. So we spoke with Dwayne Roller, who is a classics expert and author of Cleopatra, a biography, which published with Oxford this past spring. When women today dress up like Cleopatra, I'm thinking of the straight across bangs, the heavy eye makeup, gold jewelry, is this in any way accurate? Well, all of this goes back to the Roman demonization of her. When they defeated her, it was, as is traditional, necessary to emphasize the power of the enemy that you've defeated. Right. And, of course, twisted into this is the usual male chauvinism that powerful women basically don't play fair mm -hmm. and that powerful women get what they need essentially by using their physical characteristics. So this kind of created an idea that Cleopatra must have been an incredibly beautiful person because she drove so many men crazy, allegedly. And that has handed down through the ages. Shakespeare uh, certainly picks up on it in some of his descriptions. And so Cleopatra really on relatively little evidence has become the icon of feminine beauty. And it's out of that that all of these cosmetics, these use of gold ornaments and things like that uh, has developed. In addition, we know that Cleopatra wrote some treatises on the care of the body. These were probably scientific treatises, not cosmetic treatises, okay. but that's plugged into it as well, that uh, here was a woman who was concerned with the care of the body, and so all of this line of cosmetics and so on has probably developed from those reasons. And have you actually seen these documents? Like, are they more concerned with bathing or nutrition? No, uh, uh, yes, I have seen what little survives, and it's not much. Okay. And basically... They're concerned with a number of remedies for skin diseases, for baldness and problems with the hair and so forth. Was baldness seen as an illness or just an unattractive feature then? I don't think it was seen as an illness. It was seen as a condition. And obviously uh, people probably since prehistoric times have wondered about it and have wondered how you could deal with it 
and whether or not you could do things to make the hair grow more fully. And this was as much a concern in ancient times as, as today. Many people who have reviewed your book have noted that Cleopatra was probably the first victim of the sort of propaganda campaigns waged against female politicians, where, where her sexuality or appearance is used against her. Well, as I said previously, there has always been this attitude in male authors, and since most of the authors are male, uh-huh. that a powerful whim- woman basically cheats to get what she needs. Uh, all women use their physical attractiveness. They're basically witches. They're basically sorceresses. And this, of course, goes back to prehistoric times, people like Medea. And so when the propaganda campaign developed against Cleopatra, it was very easy to say she almost defeated us because she cheated us. She cheated in using her feminine wiles in even driving Mark Antony to improper decisions because she really was a witch. She made him lose his reason. And yes, you're right, that's certainly one of the very first examples we have that's well documented of this pervasive phenomenon, and we're still seeing it today. There still, unfortunately, is, especially in this country, a certain discomfort among many people with powerful women. And, And you always start hearing things about their sexuality or their physical appearance and so on that you do not hear about men. So what do you think of the Hollywood portrayal of Cleopatra? Since we only have really crude suggestions of what she may have looked like, do you think that the Liz Taylor portrayal was best, or maybe they did it really well in the series Rome, or that even this upcoming Angelina Jolie movie might do it correctly? I would think the Elizabeth Taylor portrayal is probably not a bad one. Uh, And, of course, a lot of it has to do with the way she's dressed, and we do know something about that. We do know that she appeared as the goddess Isis at public and state functions, and that's essentially how she's shown in that particular movie. But, uh, again, it's just very difficult to say because uh, we don't have any descriptions, and we do have to perhaps keep in mind that this is a woman who had four children and a miscarriage and died at the age of 39. Mm -hmm. So she probably wasn't all that youthful looking near the end of her life. We we, we don't know. And we understand you're working with producers at BBC America to develop a series, possibly for later sale to HBO? This has not progressed very far, but I'm under contract to them as a consultant, and they've optioned the book as background material. And we're moving along, but the idea is to develop a a series on Cleopatra that will stand in contrast to what we've seen in cinema all along. We'll really bring out her intellectual and military and leadership qualities and not emphasize the sex symbol qualities. So who was Cleopatra as a leader? We, We know that she was highly educated. We know she was a published author. We know that she led her fleet in battle, that she worked very hard to salvage a dying kingdom. She didn't make a go of it, but she still worked very hard. She traveled throughout the country. She spoke all these different languages. She has all the credentials of a dynamic and important leader. And of course, she gave Rome 
a real run for it for quite a number of years. But the Romans won. So we hear their side of the story. If she wrote her own memoirs or had a court historian, that really has not directly survived. Cleopatra is obviously an ancient example, but appearance discrimination against female politicians is still a really big issue. Uh, I don't think I have to remind anybody of the appearance-based campaigns waged against Sonia Sotomayor, Sarah Palin, Hillary Clinton, Elena Kagan, Christine O'Donnell, just to name a few. But this just doesn't happen to female politicians. It happens in all workplaces. It doesn't just affect women. For instance, uh, it's been shown that short men are penalized in hiring, promotion, and earnings. Overweight individuals are often assumed to have poor work habits and are therefore not hired. Um, Attractive students in school receive more attention from teachers and classmates. Uh, And waitresses can be restricted to specific weights, hairstyles, and shoes, but it's rarely the case for their male counterparts. I'm pulling this from a book called The Beauty Bias, The Injustice of Appearance in Life and Law by Deborah Rohde. Uh, she is the director of the Center on the Legal Profession at Stanford University, where she's also a professor of law. Uh, we don't have enough time in this podcast to list off all of her credentials. Uh, but what she calls for is for us to treat appearance um, discrimination not just as an aesthetic issue, but as a legal and political one as well. She recently gave a lecture at Fordham University Law School and was nice enough to sit down with Michelle and I afterwards and talk to us a little bit about this beauty bias. All right, so in your book, you show that people who are more attractive are more likely to get ahead, to get that promotion, get the better jobs. So you argue that it is important that we pay attention to beauty bias and the discrimination that's taking place. Well, we know that about the same percentage of individuals experience appearance discrimination as experience race and sex discrimination in a higher percentage than those who report religion and um, disability or age-related prejudice. So it's a pervasive problem in the workplace, and unlike those other forms of discrimination, it's one that the law tolerates. Most people don't think of protection against beauty discrimination as a civil right. Why does it fall to the bottom of the totem pole? Why is it that if someone calls someone ugly, it doesn't have you know a bigoted connotation? What is it going to take to have this protection against that sort of bias? People speaking out on the issue, calling the commentators on the sexism when it rears its head as it did during the nomination for Elena Kagan. When you have a national newscaster saying, why does she look like somebody who belongs in a kosher deli? We need a public outcry about that. Those sorts of comments would not be acceptable if they were made about someone's race or ethnicity. And uh, so we need to get people to see that that form of prejudice, in many instances, is a way of taking up women down. It's reflective of a broader range of intolerance that ought not to be socially legitimate. Some people will argue, well, we're biologically hardwired, you talk about this in your book, we're biologically hardwired um, to be more receptive to more attractive people. What do you say to that argument? We are. 
and there's a limit to what you can do. But we also know that people are biologically hardwired to prefer people who are like them in salient respects, including race and, and, and gender, and yet we've accomplished a lot in terms of social justice by making those forms of preferences illegal in certain contexts. So, you know, we're not going to change the dating world through these ordinances, but we can make the workplaces operate on a more level playing field, and we should do what we can. It's funny, it seems like we all are participating in this collective disavowal. Like, we all know it's there, we all know it's terrible, but rarely do people speak up. And I think in your book you, you say that people are embarrassed. Well, I think there's a trivialization and a social stigma that's attached to confessing that one's the victim of looks discrimination. People don't want to go there. You know, it's certainly a lot easier for people to say I was a victim of race discrimination or sex discrimination. Looks suggest it's your problem. You should do something about it. You should fix it. I'm sorry, I have one more question and then I'll let you go. Um, okay, so in your book, I remember reading this line and it really struck me. You said that there was a point in our, you're talking about, you know, 100, 200 years ago when attractive people were actually not allowed to, out of the, hou the house. Laws. What? Ugly laws. Ugly laws, yes. Like women couldn't leave without a corset. Could you talk about those ugly laws and are we in a better state now? Is it? Do you think it's just as bad comparatively? Because ugly laws, that sounds pretty terrible, and I, I would think that we're better off now, but maybe not. I'm just curious comparatively how we're doing. Well, I think it's mixed. We no longer have those laws, and we now also have the Americans Against Disability Act, which makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of physical defects. Uh, that's, you know, that's a mark of our social progress. But I think our culture over the last um, century has become much more obsessed with images, uh, in part because they're accessible and much more accessible, and we have idealized notions of what the appropriate social norm is that are much more omnipresent and powerful and physically unrealistic. So people are now competing with these airbrushed, ultra-thin models of attractiveness um, that in earlier generations didn't define the norm for women. Michelle, if I may, uh, I'd like to share a few more statistics. Of course. Um, I also learned this from the beauty bias, that in representative surveys, over half of young women reported that they would prefer to be hit by a car than be fat. Wow. Looking at a lot of the research in the book, I did a little bit of my own math and discovered that um, from 1960 to now, the ideal body type for American women uh, is now 10% taller and 27% thinner. Wow. And that actually ties perfectly into our next segment. As Deborah Rohde said, people need to speak out against appearance discrimination. That's how we'll start to see change. And back in November, we were lucky enough to have two women in our studio who are doing just this. They are Margita Chris Jansen and Jessica Jarchow, the bloggers behind Riots Not Diets and Tangled Up in Lace, respectively. And here's what they had to say. 
So ladies, thank you so much for joining us when you're all the way from San Diego. And I know you guys just got in. Yes, thank you for having yes, us. Yes, thank you so much. Both of you are both very, very active in the movement of FA, which is fat acceptance. Yes. Right. Fat acceptance to me is just the radical idea that everybody is a good body. And I actually think that fat acceptance is a misnomer for what we do because at this point in the game, like it's body acceptance period. It's about right. everybody is a good body, like you said. I mean, it sounds real feel good to be like, everybody should love themselves. But ultimately what it comes down to is that this is just one more thing that kind of keeps us down, that keeps us from doing what we need to do in life, from like achieving our dreams. Like so many people, not just fat people, say, I want to go on a cruise or I want to travel or I want to do this once I lose 5, 10, 15, 100 pounds. Right, or once I'm tanner or longer hair. I don't always think it's, uh, I mean, it's It's not always weight related. Right, but it's... It's just this um, idea that we put our life on hold or that our worth is on hold. Right. A more ideal body. Right. In accepting fat bodies, which is what you and I focus on, Mm -hmm. almost anybody in this day and age can be considered fat. It's more body acceptance. Yeah, it's true. Making peace with your body. There's definitely people who are like, I'm a size six, I'm a size eight. Can I do fat acceptance? Because Mm -hmm. I get told I'm fat all the time. And it's funny because to us, it's like, you know, we're like size 20, 22. So we're just like, Okay, cool. You're not fat. I mean, you're not, like, really (laughs) fat, but at the same time, like, you you live in this world, too. You live in this world that tells you your body's not okay for whatever reason. So, yes, fat acceptance is for you. It's for everybody. Margina and I, in our our fat activism, we stopped using words like chubby and voluptuous and things that um, are euphemisms for fat. We... Um, and that's really hard for other people in our lives to say, mm-hmm. like, when I describe myself as fat, people are like, don't, but you're so pretty. Don't say that <laughs> about yourself. You're so pretty. I can be both. They're not mutually excu- exclusive to me. And this conversation takes place in... Fattosphere? The, the, the Fattosphere is yeah. um, the online community of bloggers. There's a what we call fatchinistas, which is fat fashionistas yes. that have um, an outfit posting mm-hmm. forum online and um, Margita and I are both really active in uh, that community mm-hmm. just uh, promoting fat visibility but again uh, fat it's more body visibility just different shapes right. and um, different outfits and not being ashamed to wear um, something that fits your body yeah. no matter what size you are. And it's actually great that you guys have already talked to people on fashion because Honestly, fashion is the way that so many people get involved in the political side of body acceptance because there are so many people, if you're not like a size 12 or smaller, you can't walk into any store Mm -hmm. and find something to wear always. Um, I want to talk about Glee and a recent episode where they discussed male body image. Um, I have a clip. But doesn't it get exhausting thinking about what you eat, working out like a madman? Nah. I mean, if I miss a workout or eat a hot dog, I hate myself for a few days. But the fact is, if I want to be cool, if I want to get Quinn for good, I got to look the part. If you get up on that stage and look like the Pillsbury Doughboy, no way you're staying popular. Come on, let's do some squats. A couple episodes ago on Glee, they addressed male body image issues. And it was... I was sitting there with my friends, and they know the work that I do, and they just looked at me, they're like, are they really talking about this right now? And I was like, I think they are. It's so underrepresented. Like, it's so, and you have this guy, the main character, Finn, who 
to us just looks like this tall dreamboat. Classically handsome. Like, and then he's like, I think I'm fat and like, I don't want to. He and did? Like, yeah, and he had this friend, the friend there who was like super muscular and like taking off a shirt all the time. And he was talking about how like when he eats a sandwich, he hates himself. You know, they could have done that exact same storyline with two women and we've seen that storyline a thousand times. But to see it with two men was, it was more jarring. Like it actually had a greater effect on you because you're like, oh, guys have body image issues too. And obviously we know that, but it's just Is not that portrayed. groundbreaking? Has that I happened mean, before? Like, I remember when I was reading Naomi Wolf's uh, The Beauty Myth, mm-hmm. she has this um, introduction to a chapter, the, the beginning of a chapter, where she begins to describe all of these college men and all of the terrible things they put their bodies through. And they're still runners, but they starve themselves. And and they you know, pull out their hair and pick their skin, or, you know, a whole number of things. I, I don't know that I remember them all exactly. And it was horrifying, and how they mutilate their bodies, mm-hmm. um, you know, for these images of beauty or perfection. And then at the end, she says, "And guess what? These aren't the men of America. These are actually, you know, our young women." And when you get to that point, you're like, you you get to this moment of, oh, why was it so much more horrifying why? to hear about men? And there's, I think there's something to be said for women or in this country at least or in Western culture are, are taught to be very concerned about the way they look mm-hmm. and that you can change and be better. And then men are taught to pretend that you don't care. Right. It's not a big deal. That's, right. That's you don't true. talk about that's your... true. Like we're taught to talk about how much we hate ourselves and they're taught to just think right. that they're the ish. And, like, there's no room for that in-between space where you're not exactly sure how you feel about your body. Yeah, women are supposed to be very vocal about their body hate. Yeah. That's how we bond. We talk about our dieting tips. Well, speaking of how women are told to interact, I want to bring up uh, women's magazines and talk about that recent Marie Claire article by Mara Kelly. I know you were both very vocal about it on your blogs. Uh, Basically, what happened was this blogger from Marie Claire was writing about the show Mike and Molly uh, and said some pretty contentious things. I'm quoting directly here. She says, I think I'd be grossed out if I had to watch two characters with rolls and rolls of fat kissing each other. Um, And she goes on to say, because I'd be grossed out if I had to watch them doing anything. To be brutally honest, even in real life, I find it aesthetically displeasing to watch a very, very fat person simply walk across a room. Messages like that, especially hate-filled messages, Mm -hmm. just spread like wildfire. And everyone knows about it. Before she could, she posted an apology. She posted a a pretty bad apology. Backhanded, um, saying she wasn't really sorry um, she was sorry for hurting our fat feelings, but she right. was not sorry for us being offensive <laughs> to, and, her, to her, like, right? <laughs> whatever. But, I mean, and she only posted that apology after getting, I think, email. Uh, the editor said they got 28,000 emails. Yeah. They had, like, over 1,500 comments mm-hmm. on the article. Immediately, there was this media backlash against Marie Claire. They talked about it on The View, on the Today Show, on some new show of Sharon Osbourne called The mm-hmm. Talk. And they were all like, this is awful. How could they ever do that? It's like Nazi Germany or whatever. Right, they wanted to boycott. But the stupid thing is, is that these are the very same programs that have like weight loss portions every day right. that are constantly talking about like, let's be skinny. Let's be quote unquote yeah. healthy. You can't be fat. And so it's just so stupid to me because all these people in the media are like, you can't say that it's disgusting to be fat. And yet they say it a thousand times a day. They tell you in one section of a publication to be okay with the way you are and that you're fine and that you're great and that you deserve all the happiness no matter what you look like and then they tell you how to look a certain way. I felt like Marie Claire allowed that 
article to be published because they thought people would take it in and be like, yeah, fat is gross, yuck, don't put them on TV. And then when people responded the way that they did, they were like, oh, whoopsies, she'll apologize. Yeah. Sorry you guys didn't eat this we up. We did this to open up a dialogue, yeah. and now we're going to have a fat acceptance exactly. blog and write an article. Even the media, like Sharon Osbourne was like tearing up yeah, on her TV and sh- show to think about it. She was like, you know, I'm 30 pounds overweight right now. Do you not want me to kiss my husband or my right. children? And that's why it was so um, aggressive, her words. Like, you cannot love another person in public. Like, don't ever feel compelled to to kiss your spouse. Right. Let alone walk across a room. Yeah. Right. Like I mean, that. we're like totally. I mean, that's not even realistic. Yeah. Like, we'll have to go somewhere <laughs> right. if you want us to exercise. We have. I to. hear this come up a lot, especially every time we hear something from Mimi Roth and her followers that if you just ate less and went to the gym more, you wouldn't have the problems that come with having a larger body. That it's your fault, and that no, they're not disgusted by you. They just want you to be healthy. Right. That's my favorite argument as a way a really excellent way to for people to promote their body hate is to say that they're not offended by the way we look they're more concerned with our health which is total crap yeah Marquita you could talk more about uh, health at every size uh, well health at every size is again kind of like fat acceptance the radical idea (laughs) that everybody can be healthy like I mean not everybody is healthy but size is not the determining factor right, in your that health. you can't look at somebody's body and, and know tell, like right. you're unhealthy you're right healthy. because we so often will see a thin person and be like good for them for being so healthy right when we don't know their history and we all and then we'll see a um like i've always said that i'm damned if i do damned if i don't because if someone sees me at a restaurant eating a big greasy cheeseburger Mm -hmm. they say well go figure but if i'm eating a salad they judge me too (laughs) because then they're like well of course you need that like you should be doing that (laughs) um but uh the the health issue is which always blows my mind that we feel like we owe it to other people to judge their choices like it's it's interesting because i feel like we've people who are doing work um critical work on like quote-unquote obesity or whatever that there's actually a lot of counter studies that don't um back up these claims that fat is always unhealthy but at the same time like i don't want to point to those because i don't need to justify my fat right if i'm unhealthy and fat fine right and it doesn't affect anyone else right and so i mean for someone to say that they are worried about your health and that's why they don't want you to be fat unless it's your mom like that's coming from a place of total body hatred that's not coming from I don't even think your mom's obligated to be concerned I mean I feel like we've got to decide um we've got to make a conscious decision each and every one of us to stop um policing other people's decisions but Jessica don't you know that obesity causes headlessness (laughs) (laughs) oh yes the uh the headless fatty the headless fatty is um a another one of my favorite phenomenons um, of the news programs. And um, they show you, which is a a really interesting. Margita is actually doing a documentary on me (laughs) Um, about fat visibility. And it's um, the headless fatty separates the person and it dehumanizes you and takes you away from Basically, what it, it'll Thanks, be, it'll Marquita. be, yeah. it'll be like <laughs> someone yeah, on Mar- CNN will be doing a story on the quote unquote obesity epidemic. And immediately you see all of these fat bodies on your TV screen, but they're only shot from the neck down. Mm-hmm. And so I 
I consider it to be a paradox of hypervisibility and invisibility because what it is is the fat body is so visible you couldn't hide it even if you wanted to and yet they don't care about your face it's not about you as a person so you the person become totally invisible while you the fat body are hyper visible you no know, i don't think i told you this marquita but the other day i got an email from somebody who said that they recognized their headless body <gasps> on really? the news which is like i can't even imagine i don't want to get emotional too emotional though it may make for an excellent podcast but um i can't even imagine what that would feel like for me mm-hmm. um i am getting choked up sorry um to see my body yeah like that yeah no it's I know that they're talking about me that way, but that they're not even allowing me. I mean, that's only something you can share. And, like, yeah. people who know you see your body that way. Yeah. And just, it's such an ugly. It's, right. yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's just, cool. it, I yeah. mean, I, the email, like, I couldn't even respond to her because I wasn't, I mean, I will if she's listening. I will. Uh-huh. Um, but. I can't imagine what that would feel like. The way that um, we treat fat people is... A lot of people also say that fat hatred's the um, last acceptable form of discrimination, but that is not true. No, and that's um, I. That's a really big issue for me because um, what you were saying with the fat acceptance movement, a lot of that came with feminism because mm-hmm. it's the policing of our bodies it's saying that you can't you are not uh you don't have enough resources to make decisions for your own body right you can't just be who you want to be yeah look the way you want to look are are there any celebrities that young women who are feeling this pressure to look a certain way uh, that they can look up to there are some that i would have considered being like really great body body positive positive Mm -hmm. people and then they do campaigns with like Weight Watchers and stuff. Jennifer and Hudson. Jennifer Hudson. Heartbreaker. Queen Latifah. Like the Queen Latifah did a weight too. loss. Mm-hmm. What? The girl from Popular too. Oh, oh my yeah, gosh. that's really hard for Margita to talk Sarah about. Sarah Rue. Sarah Rue. What stuff. I just love I is there. I feel like, and this is maybe just me projecting my issues and wanting to still be okay with these like fat heroes, heroes mm-hmm. that I had, <laughs> was like Jennifer Hudson and Sarah Rue's taglines for their weight loss are so asinine that I just feel like they don't believe it either. Right. Like maybe they're literally just doing it for a what paycheck. Is, Her tagline's like, um I can't. I can't yeah, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. Like things that I felt were totally like I do it. I right. can and I'm still fat. Sarah like, Rue was a famous celebrity or you know, B level celebrity, whatever. <laughs> and her she thing was is famous to you, Margita. She was famous to me. Yeah. And in her interview she's like I was so fat, I didn't want to leave the house. And I was like, girl, you get paid to leave the house. Like, right? what are you talking about? But if even privileged, well-to-do celebrities feel this way, what can we tell the average man or woman to do? I think if you want to change the way people think, it's not about coming up with some TV show that's like, love your body. Like, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, I feel like you have to start inside yourself and realize the images you're processing and just sort of like take that down and then also finding a community like Margita and I have. I thought of something really great. It's from the book, Lessons from the Fatosphere, How to Quit Dieting and Declare Truth with Your Body or whatever. It's by Marianne Kirby and Kate Harding. Stop making negative remarks about your body and people that you see. Others' bodies. And others' bodies. 
if you, because you'll, it's so hard to do, actually. Yeah. Like, because I was so used to just walking down the street, and, like, I'd see a girl be like, oh, that skirt's too tight, or, oh, like, those shoes don't match, or whatever. And the minute you actually, like, think about it and stop making those comments, like, it really does change how you start to think about your own body. What I started to do was I focused on my favorite qualities and ignored the things I was having problems with and started there. And then once I was just like, you have the best eyes and the best <laughs> lips there has ever been. And then I just went from there. And I, yeah. But again, like I really come from a self-absorbed place. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, ladies, thank you so much for coming into our studio. Thank you for having, for having us. us. It was, it was a ball. Yeah. Have a wonderful visit in New York. Yes. Thank you so much. Well, that just about wraps it up for us this time around. Uh, our notes say here that Michelle reflects a little, but I think maybe we've had a little, there's, there's a lot to digest, so I think maybe we're going to skip that part. Um, we're going to leave you with one last treat. We recently had the privilege of attending the launch party for the Berg Fashion Library at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, the Berg Fashion Library is an online product uh, that chronicles the history of fashion. It's very, very cool. And uh, we met some really cool people there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked to some fashionistas, a lot of people who had contributed. They were very warm, happy to speak with us. And they had some really interesting things to say about fashion and beauty, not what you might expect. And how fashion connects to beauty. I think I was really surprised. So we'll leave you with that. Um, but until next time, make sure to visit us at blog.oup.com. We'll have links to everything we've talked about today, um, biographies of everybody you've heard from, and suggestions for further reading. I feel like we should start singing Christina Aguilera right now. We are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what they but say. But we won't. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm Toby Slade from the University of Tokyo. I'm John Vollmer from New York City. Um, our main question tonight is, does being fashionable make you beautiful? My suspicion is, is that if you think you're fashionable, you think you look really good and therefore you must be beautiful. Uh, but beauty is always ju judged by someone from outside who you are. I mean, if you find me beautiful, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> I'm very much older than Toby, so it's okay. <laughs> and Toby, what do you think? Well, I tend to agree that, you know, fashion is, is the acceptance of change as an affirmative value. So it accepts that beauty or what we think is beautiful is going to change in six months anyway. So, yeah, so I guess if you are in that moment where you are in fashion, then you are what the, what the civilization or the culture is celebrating at that moment. But you are also going to accept that you're not going to be that very shortly. I'd like to ask a question of Toby. What do you do with the term classical beauty? You know, you often hear, you know, she's a classical beauty. What does that mean? Well, I think classical forms are forms that in some way resist fashion. They have some sort of internal structure that is resistant to change. And I think that is to do with their humanism, that is how close they are to human proportion and often to do with things like whether they are symmetrical or not because I think classical beauty is often based on what we are and we are symmetrical and we are based on certain proportions so I think that something like the classical architecture, the Metropolitan Museum or something will remain 
a beautiful building because it is based on those human proportions and it is symmetrical. And so that classical beauty would be something that's you, you quite close you to it. You didn't think you were going to get this, did you? <laughs> no, I like This is good. This is good. <laughs> I think when we see classical beauty, what do we see? We see someone like Lauren Bacall that we're interested in still seeing, even though she's in her 80s, because she still reminds us that when, when she was in her teens and 20s, she was really beautiful and mesmerizing. She still is. We still pay attention to what she wears because unlike most people, I think Lauren Bacall puts on her own clothes as opposed to what her stylist puts on. Could you say your name and what you do? Yes, my name is Edna Nashon, and I put together a book for Burke called Jews and Shoes. And they're the only piece of clothing that does not change its position when not worn. Even hats fall down. Shoes stand there and wait for you. Now, do you think that shoes can make a person more beautiful? I know a lot of women suffer in gills because, you know, it elongates their legs. So what, what do you think about shoes and beauty? Beauty, beauty is a very elusive concept. Sex is real. Um, do shoes have an erotic aspect? Absolutely. Shoes are, are one of the very basic things that you see repeatedly pornographic images. The high heel shoe. And there are various theories about that. Some people read the penis into the high heel and all the all kind of interpretations here, including Freudian and so on and so forth. Do shoes change, high heel shoes change the way we walk? Yes, they do. And so uh, they absolutely are part of this sexualized image of women. And that's why women are willing to suffer to wear these horrendous shoes. I mean, no sane person no guy would ever wear these things, these contraptions. How has fashion influenced beauty over history? Has that relationship changed? or There's an author, James Laver, who has written about looking back at clothing, and he says that things that were fashionable five years ago or ten years ago are often considered ugly. And things that were fashionable 20 years ago are considered strange. And then when you get back 100 years, they're considered beautiful. Oh, perfect. And what's your name? Annie Van Esch. And what do you do with Berg? On the East Asia volume, I wrote the introductory essay on uh, Japan. So what's the most exciting thing about the history of Japanese fashion for you? I love contemporary fashion. I love Issey Miyake and Yoji Yamamoto and Comde Garcon and, you know, Rei Kawakubo and all the rest. But in terms of traditional Japanese dress, the kimono, early 20th century, um, all of the art movements of the world at that time, cubism, you know, early abstractionism, were represented in the designs on the surface of the silk used to make Japanese kimono. So you see there's actually a photo in the um, volume on Japanese art that shows the Empire State Building, a design of the Empire State Building on kimono. But the cut of the kimono was consistent for 1,500 years. Nothing changed. So the, the period, the era, the history was represented in the designs that were applied to the kimono. 
that's very interesting. Do you find the kimono a beautiful fashion piece just because it has remained unchanged for so long? Well, I don't, I don't know that I would apply it to beauty, but I think that um, there's no accidents in the way people dress. There's always a reason. And I think that there's a certain aesthetic, a Japanese aesthetic, that appreciated that simple, straight line cut, panels sewn together, just straight lines. And I think, I think that's beautiful. Um, so we're talking about beauty. And the question is, does fashion make you beautiful? Does fashion make you beautiful? Wait, who are you? <laughs> I'm your boss. I'm the director of publicity at Oxford University Press. <laughs> you know who I am. <laughs> I'm the fashion maven of OUP. So fashionable, you only go by one name. You know, I don't know if fashion makes you beautiful. I think what's inside makes you beautiful. And if you're fashionable outside, are you fashionable inside? I don't know. It's a good question. How would you describe your sense of fashion? <laughs> Bohemian, thrift store, whatever's on Upstate. sale. <laughs> Upstate. You're fired. <laughs> and you've also uh, revealed to us your habit of wearing a safety pin near your collar. What's, what's going on with that? Uh, that's sort of a holdover from my college days. I was sort of everyone's go-to guy for anything that they needed. I wasn't a Boy Scout or anything, but... Um, people would also often ask me for a safety pin or a button. I don't know why. When I got to New York, I found within the first three months of me arriving, about seven people asked me for safety pins. So I immediately went out to Dwayne Reed, got a, got a bunch of safety pins and attached them to all the tails of my shirts and my collars. And it sort of became a sort of signature fashion look for me. And so um, they eventually fell off, but now I've started reattaching them and people are, um, what's that about? I think maybe I'm just bringing punk back. It's time. I think that fashion does help in making you feel beautiful. If you have wearing something nice or the textile feels really great or the silk is just, you know, swirling around you, it can make you feel beautiful. You have a lot of different sensations and it's visual. So beauty could actually be something caused by the experience of wearing something fashionable. Or I think so. It, it can make you feel happy, and maybe that happiness exudes beauty as well. We're here today with Justina. And Justina, Lauren and I are talking about the topic of beauty, and we're wondering, do you think fashion makes someone beautiful? It, it can help. What item of clothing that you own do you feel most beautiful in? Hmm. I, I have to say it's this vintage dress from my mom. Ain't no carpool ain't sexy. Damn straight.